Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The Color Purple has had this amazing life. First, it was a book, then it became a movie, and then that movie became a musical. And now the musical has been made into its own movie. That is a lot of adaptations. Today on the podcast, you'll hear if the new Color Purple does justice to the original. I'm Alameen Abdul Mahmoud. This is Commotion. Look, before we get going, I think you should hear this for yourself. I was married to a man I didn't love. Whatever I say, go. And he took my sister away from me. Even if we have to part, you and me, us have one heart. That is a bit of the trailer for The Color Purple that is in theaters right now. It's, of course, a beloved book, an Alice Walker book that won a Pulitzer Prize. It became a classic film, and then that classic film was made into this Broadway musical in 2006. And now that musical has found its way into a film. This new version stars singers Fantasia Barino and Halle Bailey and her, H-E-R, along with Taraji P. Henson, Danielle Brooks, Coleman Domingo. The Color Purple is one of these deeply beloved coming-of-age stories, one of the most beloved black coming-of-age stories in contemporary pop history. Sarah Ty Black is here. Kathleen Newman-Bermang is here. Rad Simon plays here. We're all going to talk about this and also some other stories in a minute. But first, hey, Happy New Year to all of you. Hello. It's so nice to see you. Hi. Happy New Year. I'm so excited that we get to kick off the new year like this with talking about The Color Purple. Uh, We're going to also talk about Ferrari in a minute. Also, we're going to talk about some of your maybe movie forecasts for the year 2024. But first, Kathleen, I got to say the official slogan for this new Color Purple movie is this quote, a bold new take on a beloved classic. You are the biggest Fantasia Barino person on the planet. (laughs) Does that slogan live up to the film? Well, first, I am going to say that I had a really amazing time in the theater watching this reimagining and that, yes, my girl Fantasia gave the performance of a lifetime. I have her and and, uh, Danielle Brooks, I think I have never seen performances this great on screen ever, I'm going to say, let alone of last year. I think they were incredible. And the film, you know, it made me laugh of course it made me cry uncontrollably that is who i am yes yeah, i love the yes. choreography i loved the music i think everyone should go see it i'm saying all of that to say the answer to your question is no i don't think it was a bold new take on a beloved <laughs> classic, <laughs> as promised in that slogan because you know in alice walker's original text the characters seeley and shug avery played in this version by fantasia and taraji p henson they have a romantic relationship they have a sexual relationship and in the film that is reduced to a pretty chaste kiss and their romance is more implied than explicit Mm -hmm. and uh, that is similar to the color purple film from the 80s and so watering down that queerness of the original text is not bold to me and that Mm -hmm. was 
very disappointing. You know, I think they were maybe going for a faithful adaptation of the Broadway musical, which also stripped away some of the queerness from the source material. So I'm sure that was the justification. And it's a beautiful film that got a lot of things right to me. But the beauty of adapting and reimagining classics now is to take risks, I think, and to be Mm. more inclusive. So what is the point of remaking The Color Purple in 2023 if it can't be gay as hell? Like, I just don't understand that choice. Uh, I just just wanted to just admire the elegance of you saying, look, if Fantasia Barino has 100 fans, I am one of them. If the world is against (laughs) Fantasia Barino, I'm against the world. My girl did great, but I have... Have problems with the movie like that's that's yes. uh that's your general Correct. position i buy that i 100 percent buy that that is who you are as a person sarah Tai, i mentioned that like this version of the color purple has a deeply impressive cast right we're talking about fantasia we're also talking about her we're talking about Halle bailey did the idea of adapting this into a musical work for you i was apprehensive but open um and kind of on the same train as removing the queer context Mm. it felt like a bit watching a musical not to stereotype where there were too many straight people involved (laughs) (laughs) there were so many songs that seemed like just kind of still in draft mode kind of still like and the quality of my find gets noticeably more undercooked as the film continues which is a shame because fantasia I was not a Fantasia fan before this. I knew Kathleen was. I went in with a headspace like, okay, American Idol. She put her, she put her foot in this performance. Yes, and that's did. why it's so unfair that the, the the staging of this musical was so kind of like hokey and at times really disconnected from the world of the film. Yeah, And I feel like for those familiar with The Color Purple, you know that there's a lot of gendered violence in this, a lot of sexual yeah. violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the songs were placed in very emotionally insensitive moments, especially in the beginning. Like, you can't have a, like, a song about joy bookended by sexual violence against Black women on each side and like mm. not, not uh, kind of put that in its right context. It felt like the film kind of wasn't on Seeley's side in the beginning and you really need a film to be on Seeley's side in order to pull off a film and a story like this successfully. Yeah. I think also like these beloved, beloved, beloved joke, beloved <laughs> characters like Sophia and Suge Avery who were yeah. so, so well cast here with Taraji P. Henson and Danielle Brooks. Both of them are not like the strongest dramatic actors, but they have so much charisma and so yeah. much great comedic timing that like their songs, Danielle Brooks' song, busted the film that was great <laughs> like in a good way busted like broke it open but yeah. Taraji's song like that was something where I'm like we should have had not just like the queerness of it but like the emphaticness of it like the yeah. glossy chutzpah the choreography should be like on point you know it should be hot, hot. yeah and it was kind of just sizzling so this is the this is the odd thing, Rad, about like taking a a piece of work through so many different adaptations because mm-hmm. like this musical comes out in two thousand six, runs for you know two years, is revived again um, in in sort of maybe like twenty thirteen or so, brought to Broadway twenty fifteen. It has is had a lot of these lives. Daniel Brooks was in the Broadway musical revival of the show, um, and then kind of plays the same character in this. But by the time you sit down and you're like, okay, I've, I've, I'm trying to accept this as a thing that is coming to me in the medium of film but also as a musical you're asking a lot of the material to go through so many different filtrations did it work for you 
Well, it didn't work for me. And I think that's what you're saying there is interesting because I think we do have a different receiving mechanism when we're in the stage, when we're in Broadway, and we want to receive a musical from the stage because it communicates a different way. And when you get film and you get close-ups, you want more authentic emotion. Mm. Um, And similar to what uh, both Kathleen and Sarah Tai were saying, it's like, yeah, like, like, well, especially Sarah Tai, when you talked about like the musical numbers being oddly placed, like my initial reaction is these musical numbers seem to be getting in the way of the emotions of the story, Mm. right? And, And for a lot, I mean, so... My, I was initially like uh, thinking that, look, I get it. Like um, the color purple, the Steven Spielberg movie, that movie leaned into the trauma of it all. So there is this aspect of this story now trying to lean into the joy by leaning into the musical numbers and kind of taking less risks with the more dramatic content, right? Mm. Or with the more trauma, traumatic content. And the right way to have gone about that, if you did want to have more joy in it, then yes, like Kathleen said, lean into the queer story. We lean, in, we lean into that love story. But here it felt like the musical numbers existed in a different world from the story like it, and it would be it just struggled to marry the two and if, if you think it's like it's hard to do trauma in a musical and i think the one movie that took all the risks and big swings that managed to pull that off was cabaret hmm. right uh, and this movie couldn't do that so by the time you get to this emotional catharsis at the end it didn't feel cohesive it didn't feel like the emotional catharsis belonged to the people that the story belonged to hmm. kathleen you, you as you as rad was talking there i saw you sort of like make some of like Couple of facial expressions. I'm like, oh, I'm interested. <laughs> well, am, I, am I about because am I, no, because no. <laughs> I do think Kathleen is like more naturally amenable to musicals than maybe I the am. rest of the panel. So I think I I'm am interested. too. Okay, all right. <laughs> I like step up all in. <laughs> step up is not a musical. Not I cannot musical. handle this. Not a musical. It just has music in it. <laughs> Kathleen, okay, take it away. You take you take you speak the oh, word on musical. Well, here. I mean, the thing is, the th- interesting thing about listening to Rad is that Rad answers himself as he's speaking. So I was like, huh, yeah. Um, I think that the magical realism of making Celie kind of imagine these numbers in her head as she's dealing with traumatic things in her life, I think that worked actually for me. I think Mm. my issue wasn't that these musical numbers felt misplaced or that was there was like too much joy in this traumatic story. That wasn't my issue. I think what Rad said is that they needed to lean into the queer love story. They needed to reconcile Celie's trauma, especially the sexual trauma that she has experienced with like love and joy and a true romance, which they didn't do. So they didn't pull it off in the third act for me, but the rest of it, it didn't bother me. Like it is a musical. I Mm. went in knowing it was a musical. So that's okay to me that there was like joy and music and, and singing, juxtaposed juxtaposed with uh this really traumatic story that was that was okay for me okay but i understand i i have to say it was kind of a little bit stunning to sit down um in the theater and then the first musical number starts and like a number of people in the audience go oh because they didn't know because <laughs> they didn't know that they were sitting down for a musical i think a lot of people just kind of think they're sitting down for a a new take on this you know on a story that they know and then suddenly they're surprised by a musical and i just wanted to go up to them after the show and to be like what did you think because you clearly didn't know what you were signing up for so i'm, I'm, I'm is, curious about this that. is this is a trend with the hollywood marketing machine where the trailers are burying yeah. the fact that they're musicals and you see Those that with mean girls and, yeah. mean girls yeah. yeah yeah it was after the 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 same thing happened with Wonka to be honest with you like a lot of people who showed up for Wonka like we didn't know this was going to be a musical you know Uh, Sarah Ty I gotta ask you you know we keep talking about all these 
reimaginings of these classic films, right, for younger audiences, and sometimes it makes sense to introduce a classic story to a younger audience. Is there any chance this is a version that becomes the new classic for younger audiences, do you think? No. (laughs) (laughs) But But it's it's less, like, me thinking it will or will not, and me hoping that, like, Alice Walker's book will be the source text for all, and then they just follow through the filmography that accompanies it. You don't even even mean, like, the Oprah movie. You actually, like, specifically refer to it. In my opinion, they're both Oprah movies. Like, let's be real here. We know (laughs) all of the hands involved. Said said derogatorily, I think. That's that's sort of the thing that I'm noticing. Said neutrally with the knowledge that Oprah has a lot of power, she's an executive producer on this, right. as is Steven Spielberg, you know. Sure. How I something I was really wondering about this film was how much kind of directorial autonomy did um Blitz have because yeah. it felt very Oprahfied um mm. and very Spielbergified, derogatory, later Spielbergified. <laughs> not eighty Spielberg, twenty two thousand Spielbergified. Okay, real quick, I want to throw to a, a, a clip. I want to guys want to play you guys a clip here. This is Taraji P. Henson, who plays Shug Avery in the film. Here's something that she said during the press run for The Color Purple. Take a listen. When you hear someone saying, oh, such and such made $10 million. No, that's not that. That didn't make it to their account. Mm. Know that off the top, Uncle Sam is getting 50%. That's right. Okay? So do the math. Now we have $5 million. Your team is getting 30% or whatever your team is off of what you grossed, not after what Uncle Sam took. Now do the math. Mm. So I just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm only human, and, and it seems every time I do something and I break another glass ceiling, when it's time to renegotiate, I'm at the bottom again mm. like I never mm. did what mm. I just did, mm. and I'm just tired. Mm. tired. Yeah. I'm tired. Mm-hmm. I'm tired. Ty, what's your reaction to what Taraji was saying there? I am so in awe of her speaking up, but mostly I hope, and I truly hope that she doesn't get Moniqued, because the last person, the last black woman who spoke out about her treatment under Oprah, generally, Mm. uh, that did not go well for her career. And Mm. I really hope that we are in a place culturally where we stick up for her. And I believe everyone should be paid fairly, of course. I think Black women should be paid fairly. I think that no one should be making millions of dollars from like one gig at mm-hmm. all. I think that all the people, obviously, who contributed to the film should be, be paid fairly. And I think the strike opened our eyes to a lot of the, to, to the fact that a lot of people working in Hollywood are also working class. Mm. So on the one hand, I do very much sympathize. But on the other, it's like I'm like Taraji. I actually don't want you to make millions of dollars nah. either. Hmm. I want everyone everyone to be paid fairly. It's not that I'm just sad that you're not in the upper 1%. But yeah, I think that seeing kind of the narrative of Taraji versus Oprah that's kind of subtly been emerging where we're like seeing some tension, hmm. it has just brought up, as I said, a lot of parallels with Monique and her work on Precious and how that kind of went for her. My understanding of Taraji's comments, uh, maybe last word on this to to you, Kathleen, but my my understanding of her comments wasn't that, you know, she's being underpaid herself. It was just sort of in comparison to like the, the, the what other white Hollywood actors sort of make for doing the same kind of work um, in similar movies. And so that begins to make her career kind of feel devalued in that way. What's What's your take, Kathleen? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I mean, Sarah has a point for sure that this disparity of what actors make um, is real. And mm-hmm. in this capitalist society, no one should be making that much money. Uh, however, within Hollywood and within entertainment, this is what they're making. And Black actresses, we see them speak out about it 
over and over and over again. You know, mm. Viola Davis, I'm going to paraphrase here, but she has this famous quote where she talks about how people call her the black Meryl Streep, but she's not making Meryl Streep money. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we're, we're talking about equity here and black actresses like Gabrielle Union has talked about it. Robin Feed, after these comments came out, she did a whole thread about it. Monique is a great example. They've talked about it over and over and over again. We've seen repercussions for people being vocal about this. Mm. Um, so I just want to know how many more have to talk about it for this to change. You know, the color purple did massive numbers at the box office. Mm-hmm. Who's going to see the returns on that? I don't know if it's going to be Fantasia and Danielle Brooks. They're going to hopefully receive nominations throughout this award season. Will that translate to more money for either of them? The examples we have, Halle uh, Berry has said that she did not make the the money that she should have after winning an Oscar. I think that yeah. history, if history is any indication, it's not going to change. And that's really, really frustrating to me. And I and I think you hear that hopelessness in Taraji P. Henson's voice mm. because she knows that. And I don't I wish I had like a hopeful thing to say that yes, society has changed. It's Sarah Ty alluded to, alluded to yeah. and everything's gonna be great. I don't have that belief. Listen, it's just because it's a new year, you don't have to be hopeful. Like that's not it's not like everything has changed <laughs> in the membrane be, between though. last year and this year. Yeah. I, I'm interested in seeing how this conversation plays out after award season, because I do think you're right, people like Daniel Brooks and Fantasia Barino, they're in line to maybe receive, you know, more and more nominations. And I hope that changes the course of their careers and how people talk about them as stars. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. Okay, we're going to keep things going with this. Two objects cannot occupy the same point in space. (laughs) The same moment in time. The corner races at you. You have perhaps a crisis of identity. If you get into one of my cars, you get in the wind. Okay, so that's the trailer for Ferrari, but if you heard a laugh, it's because Seratai could not contain themselves hearing Adam Driver <laughs> in his iconic Italian accent. The second time that he's played an iconic Italian. I want to come back to that in a moment. But first, let's talk about Ferrari. So this is a new biopic of, of of course, Enzo Ferrari, the legendary Italian car racer and entrepreneur. Uh, Adam Driver plays this guy. There's also Penelope Cruz, Shailene Woodley's in this movie. This is a Michael Mann movie. He did Heat. He did The Insider. He did Miami Vice. My favorite Michael Mann movie, by the way, is Collateral, but nobody asked me. It's fine. I knew it was. I knew it was. <laughs> do I you scan as a collateral, collateral kind of guy? Way too you, you long. I, collateral energy, I do get, yeah. I, Collateral is such a great movie that I will ride for Michael Mann any day of the week. <laughs> but, Rad, let's talk about Ferrari real quick. What did you, did, did you like? Did you like this film? Did it work for you? 
Yo, I ride for Michael Mann too, right? And people will call me an, a Michael Mann apologist yeah. when it comes to this movie because it is certainly a flawed effort from him. And I would say an endearingly flawed effort. Um, but, you know, because Michael Mann to me, this is perfect for him. He's the Ferrari of filmmakers, right? He, his movies have very smooth surfaces where you might want to lick the surfaces. and then, But then beneath it all, there's this kind of roaring engine. There's a lot of like, you know, masculine brio that he's analyzing. There's a lot yeah. of like philosophy there. And so when you get a movie like this, let's, let's ignore the accent for now. <laughs> you know? but, but, you know, like this, this exploration of Enzo's for Enzo Ferrari's like kind of very emotionally disastrous life. I think Michael Mann does interesting things there. And that clip that you played off the top, again, ignoring the accent, that clip where he talks about two things cannot occupy the same space at one time. Like that is kind of the guiding ethos of this movie where, where Enzo Ferrari is constantly trying to make two th- things, make space for two things that are colliding. He has uh, a really thorny relationship with his wife played by, um, uh, Penelope Cruz, who's just killing it in this movie, mm-hmm. absolutely ferocious. They are mourning their young son, but meanwhile, he's also making space for his uh, his his new son with a mistress. And then on top of that, there's you know, like in terms of the competing forces that are colliding in one space. I won't give it away, but the movie arrives at a point where he has to hold space for both victory and tragedy. So mm. it's interesting how that just kind of that Michael Mann elegantly weaves that throughout the movie. Uh, but what yet again, I do get that it's not. It's maybe a little more dramatically inert than some of his other movies, mm. but at the same time, like this is a this is a racing movie. This is a Ferrari movie. Maybe you expect more roaring car scenes, but the, here, the, you know, Michael Mann's so much more interested in the kitchen scenes, which you know you'd absolutely expect from the director of Heat. Who, if you watch Heat, great big heist scene, but the movie was eclipsed by a coffee shop scene. Yeah, I, I what I liked about your um, review of Ferrari is that you several times said ignoring the accent, which I will not <laughs> let Sarah Ty do. Sarah Ty, this is the second time that Adam Driver has played this iconic Italian figure, right? He played Maurizio Gucci in The House of Gucci. Uh, did Ferrari work for you? Did Adam Driver's Italian accent work for you? Tell me a story. Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm not anti-Adam Driver by any means. I'm okay. neutral. But he's so like stiff in this. And I understand his character is a little bit like that. But his portrayal of that stiffness is in itself stiff. Yeah. And his accent is so bad. It's Count Dracula. <laughs> it's Count Dracula. And it's really hard to separate his performance from that. And believe me i tried and it's not just that it's that almost every single person who's not italian or penelope cruz in this film does not just have like a bad accent they just like forget to do accents like patrick Dempsey at one point is like just american like shailene shailene whitley is like i don't know what she's doing it's so confusing like speaking of all the money in the industry i'm like was there no dialect coach like it's almost kind of like insulting to watch something like this and i think that especially paired with like penelope cruz who I would watch read a phone book. Yeah. Like truly, as Rad said, ferocious in this. Like, I hope she wins some awards. It became kind of like a joke. I'm like, this is who she's paired with. Like every single thing <laughs> was with that accent. And I just could not take it seriously. And I feel like I really had to like maintain my uh, POV with Penelope Cruz for that reason. And I love the way she kind of like, punctures the boundedness that women are cursed with in michael mann films like we get to hear sarah gadon's character have like two lines like come on um but yeah it was uh a strange ride very stuart little coded uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I, there's never been a greater diss in my, you know, in my entire life. Okay, so we only have like a few minutes left here, and it is the first week of 2024. We got 363 days of opportunity for a movie to come along and go like, you know what? This is the this is the thing I'm looking forward to the most, and I'm going to spend all my time thinking about it. Uh, Kathleen, I'm going to start with you. What are you looking forward to the most in 2024? Uh, well, in this house, we stand Zendaya, and so. <laughs> Challengers yeah. comes out in April. It stars Zendaya, Mike Face, Josh O'Connor, directed by Luca Guadagnino. I am so, so excited for this. I read the script, mm. and it is about a tennis player turned coach of her husband. He's a Grand Slams champion, but he hits a slump, and so she signs him up for this challenger event against his longtime rival and her former lover. Um, it is fascinating and nuanced and complicated and also the dynamic of it them being two white men and her being a black woman is really interesting that the script doesn't really get into so i'm interested to see if the film does and i also just love watching zendaya move you see her move on a red carpet you see her physicality and euphoria i am so excited to see her take that on in an athletic capability yeah i think it's gonna be incredible uh sarah ty 30 seconds to you I think not most looking forward to. I don't know that anything could even be that for me in this time and age. Like, take a look around. Yeah. Um, but I am looking forward to James Samuel's, aka Seal's little brother, um, his new film, The Book of Samuel, which is uh, Lakeith Stanfield, mm, Omar Sy. Yay. James <laughs> McAvoy, Daddy Era. Yeah. Um, I wasn't the biggest fan. Listen, Kathleen, watch the trailer. Um, <laughs> I'm into it. I, I wasn't the biggest fan of his last film, The Heart of They Fall, but. Given what we see as a critic and as a moviegoer in general, to me, all all I want, all I want, you can't see me, but I'm doing prayer hands. All I want <laughs> from a film is something new. And he definitely did that. So I'm excited to see kind of what he does with this. Interesting that neither one of you said uh, Jason Statham's The Beekeeper, but uh, I'll let it go for now. Did. did you know that? What's that? <laughs> I almost did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not know that. I am so looking forward to that. The That's a whole other conversation. Be- that played before Ferrari. <laughs> it looks like it's going to be the movie of the year. Rat, I literally have 30 seconds. Go. Is it uh, the beekeeper? I'm, I am no, not the beekeeper. I am actually looking forward to the Francis Ford Coppola movie that he's been trying to make for like 40 years now called Megalopolis. Uh, this movie, like it's supposed to be kind of like a follow-up to Apocalypse Now about the fall of society and no studio was having it. So this man literally fronted $120 million of his own dollars to put this on. And guess what? It stars Adam Driver. Oh my God. It's the Adam Driver year. Okay, we got to leave it there. Rad, Sarah, Ty, Kathleen, thank you so much for your time. I can't wait to see all those movies and also the beekeeper i'll see you guys soon thank you (laughs) bye Bye, y'all thank you so much this is commotion i'm alamine for more cbc podcasts go to cbc.ca slash podcasts